listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to Parasols, a song by garage pop band from Cincinnati by the name of Blossom Hall. The group is our featured musical artist tonight. So stick around to the end of the podcast and we'll tell you more about this Buckeye talent, how to find their music, and play the entire version of Parasols for you. But right now, let's stoke that fire, campers. It's time for another Ohio Mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me as always our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years at the Akron Beacon Journal telling these kinds of stories. Hi, everybody. What year are you taking us to tonight, Paula? Well, Steve, I think it's best if I start the story at the end, if that's okay. Well, you're the expert, so when does the story end? Well, it ends in 1996, on July 3rd, in Ontario, Canada, specifically at Pinery Provincial Park, not far from Toronto. On the shores of Lake Huron, some campers come across a disturbing sight. On a mound of sand is a body. It's Herb Baumeister. He came here to kill himself. He shot himself in the head with a three fifty seven Magnum revolver. Ooh. Now, Baumeister was an American rags-to-riches story. With a $4,000 loan from his mom, he started some retail thrift stores in Indianapolis that turned him into a millionaire. Back home in Westfield, Indiana, he shared a mansion, an 18-acre estate with a riding stable and an indoor swimming pool with his wife of 25 years and their three children. That's all over now. With Baumeister, they find an envelope marked Attention Canadian Authorities. And inside is a three-page suicide note written on yellow-lined notebook paper. He talks about the stress of his business, which has been failing. He talks about angst over his marriage. His wife had filed for a divorce in custody of their children. He apologizes for spoiling the scenery at the park. So his world is crashing in right now. Yeah. Even more so than you imagine, because the letter doesn't say anything about what authorities really want to know. Like how, as Baumeister fled to Ontario, investigators were collecting the skeletal remains of 11 men in the backyard of his Fox Hollow farm. And it's silent about a half dozen men who were strangled and left in the creek beds of western Ohio during years when Preble and Dark Counties were living in fear of the I-70 Strangler. Oh, now I know who we're talking about. We're talking about a serial killer today. Yes. You know, I think it's one a lot of people don't in Ohio don't know about because he's from Indiana. Right. But it the, took me a moment to get it. Now the I know. Ohio connection right. is very big. Well, there is no doubt in anyone's mind that when Baumeister pulled the trigger on his gun, he wrote the final chapter of a serial killer whose reign of terror lasted a decade and a half. Still, his death created a mystery that will never be fully solved. We'll never be able to ask him how many he killed. And 23 years later, we still don't know the identities of some of the victims that were found. Best guess... He took 27 lives between 1980 and 1996, including six cold cases from Ohio that authorities have since closed the books on 
satisfied to attribute them to the Indiana businessman. Well, that's the end of the story, Steve. So let's go back now to the beginning. All right. Herbert Baumeister was born in 1947, the eldest of four children of Dr. Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister. His dad was a physician. I did not know that. I know a lot about this case. I did not know his dad was a doctor. Well, they say his early childhood was pretty normal, but by the onset of adolescence, he began exhibiting disturbing behavior, playing with dead animals, once urinating on a teacher's desk. As a teenager, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but his parents decided not to seek treatment, possibly because the common treatment for that in the 70s was shock therapy. Oh, I wouldn't want my kids to It would be hard for a parent to, you know, think they wanted to put their kid through that. For sure. Well, after graduating high school, Baumeister tried college a couple of times, but dropped out both times. His second attempt at college, which didn't last a semester, did, however, introduce him to his future wife. In 1971, he married Julie Sater, and they had three children. In hindsight, that seemed to be an uncanny stroke of luck because Julie will say later that she and her husband had only been intimate six times in 25 years of oh, marriage. Oh, wow. So once every every other time that's, they were hitting it. Yeah, that's pretty rare for a serial killer, too, family. I mean, we know the BTK had a family and children, but that's not... That's not normal in the serial killer yeah, world. Well, it sounds like barely had family because it does not sound like they had much of a marriage. But she stuck by her husband. The, the mental issues that bothered Baumeister as a child carried over into adulthood. Just six months after he was married, his father had him committed to a psychiatric hospital for two months, and Julie stayed by his side. So his, his father had him committed and his wife stayed by his side. That's yeah. a little odd. Okay. Um, well, I mean, wait, wait. they'd only been married six months. I mean, yeah, but I mean, as an adult, can your father really have you? Probably with her permission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So over the next decade or so, Baumeister drifted through a series of jobs, all marked by strange behavior. For instance, he worked at a Bureau of Motor Vehicles office where co-workers began whispering that he must be a closet homosexual because he had sent out a Christmas card with he and another man dressed in drag. His work ethic, however, earned him a promotion. He became a program director. That didn't last a year. He was fired after he urinated on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana, an act that also suggested he was the one who had urinated on a manager's desk months earlier. Huh. That's strange behavior. That's something like a dog would do, marking territory and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. If he did it at school to a teacher, this was uh, his way, I guess. Anyway, after losing his job, he tried being a stay-at-home dad, but he had too much time on his hands. He began drinking heavily and, unknown to his wife, he began hanging out at gay bars. In 1985, he received a slap on the wrist after being charged with a hit-and-run accident while driving drunk. Six months after that, he was charged with stealing a friend's car and conspiracy to commit theft, but he managed to beat those charges as well. He finally landed a job at a thrift shop, a position he considered beneath him, but one that started growing on him as he saw a business potential. In 1988, Baumeister borrowed $4,000 from his mother, and he and his wife, Julie, opened a thrift store they called Save-A-Lot. Oh, I love that store. This is not that one. Dang it. 
<laughs> this is in Indianapolis. It is not the Save-A-Lot grocery chain. Now, a percentage of the store's profits went to a charity called the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. And it did so well the first year, they opened a second store. Within three years, they were rich. In 1991, they moved into their dream home, a horse ranch called Fox Hollow Farm, just outside Indianapolis. I've seen pictures of this. This is a nice, nice place. Yes. Kind of like a mansion almost. Absolutely. It had a beautiful Tudor home. And, you know, somehow Baumeister had turned his life around. He was a respected businessman, a father, a husband who was known for being charitable. But you probably know sometimes things aren't always what they seem to be. Inside, the marriage was under stress. Julie and the kids often stayed with Herbert's mother. Visitors to their Foxhole Hollow Farm noted that the lawn had been taken over by weeds and the house was just a mess. The only place not neglected was the pool house, where Baumeister had dressed and placed mannequins about to make it look like there was a pool party going on. Huh. Well, the thrift stores were falling apart, too. Once known for being well-organized and clean, they started looking like dumps. Baumeister, he would go to work drunk and act belligerently, not just to his employees, but to the customers. And all this time, Baumeister had another hobby that no one knew about. The first hint of it came in 1994, when his 13-year-old son was playing in the woods behind the family home. There, he found a human skeleton. He showed it to his mom, who showed it to her husband. Baumeister said his father, the physician, had used it in his research and that after he had found it in the garage, he took it out in the backyard and buried it. And Julie believed this. She did not connect the dots to a widespread murder investigation that had been going on in Indianapolis and several communities in western Ohio, an investigation that had been going on for years. It took a long time for authorities to put this story together. In Indianapolis, there was a string of disappearances with no bodies. In western Ohio, there were a string of bodies that didn't match the names of those who had disappeared. In 1990, the farming community in Ohio's Preble County was stressing over its new reputation as a serial killer's dumping ground. The quiet countryside west of Columbus had 1,500 farms within its 434-square-mile border. It was known for its county fair, its pork festival, its role as one of Ohio's top pig producers. But between 1985 and 1990, Preble County and the surrounding area had turned up the bodies of six men, all nude or partially clothed, all lying in creeks and stream beds. It was becoming prevalent enough that Preble County Sheriff Larry Green, he wasn't even waiting for the bodies to be found by passers-by. He dispatched deputies who might normally be out scouting for drunk drivers to go start searching the county for more bodies. They started looking in all manner of remote areas along the county's low-traffic winding roads. And the community was trying to help, too. Because some of the bodies were traced back to Indianapolis, families were teaching their children how to recognize Indiana plates and jot down numbers, just in case police needed evidence of cars that passed through the neighborhood. Because most of the bodies were found along I-70, 
The elusive killer was called the I-70 Strangler. At first, authorities didn't want to connect them to the numerous gay men who had gone missing in Indianapolis. And they didn't put two and two together until 1995, when a break in the case marked the beginning of the end. Now, an Indianapolis investigator named Virgil Vandergriff, he was a retired sheriff's deputy who had been hired by a couple of families to look for their missing sons. He was contacted by a man with a really interesting story. His name was Donovan, and he talked about how he had met another man who called himself Brian Smart. He said they were in a gay bar together, and Brian Smart caught his attention because he was spending a lot of time looking at a poster in the bar of Roger Goodlett. That was a poster about a patron that had gone missing. And as Donovan watched his reaction to the poster, he became convinced that this Brian Smart had something to do with the disappearance of Roger Goodlett. So he sidled up to him and introduced himself. Brian Smart said he was a landscaper from Ohio. And as the evening wore on, Brian Smart invited the man to go for a swim at a house where he was reportedly doing work while the owner was away. So they both got into Smart's Buick, which uh, the media reported had Ohio plates. Don't ask me why. I haven't been able to figure that out. Okay. Anyway, Donovan said he wasn't familiar with the place Brian Smart took him to, but he said it was a large estate with a sign that had the word farm on it. And he said it seemed like an area that had a lot of horse ranches. Donovan said the main structure was a large Tudor home and that he and Brian Smart ended up in a pool house that was filled with posed mannequins. Okay, so you think this guy has something to do with the disappearance of a patron and you're just going to get in a car with him and go to somewhere? You know, um, guys sometimes do very risky behavior. And, yeah, well, he, he, this is the story he gave. All right. Well, anyway, yeah, it not just followed him home, but apparently they engaged in some rough sex play. And at one point, Donovan said Smart was choking him with a pool hose, and he didn't think he was going to stop. So Donovan pretended to pass out. Smart stopped and released the hose. And when Donovan opened his eyes and revealed he was still conscious, he said Smart seemed really alarmed. Well, Donovan's bigger than him, and clearly the Smart had got, not got the best of him and wasn't going to take him on, you know, right. head on. So he agreed to take Donovan back to the gay bar where they had met, and he did and dropped him off. Well, Donovan, if he wasn't sure before, he was sure now this guy was up to no good and that he probably was responsible for Roger Goodlett's disappearance. But then Brian Smart himself disappeared. Donovan didn't see him again until two years later. Oh, two years. Two years. So imagine Donovan is sitting in his car at a stop sign, and he spots Brian Smart in his own car. He jots down the license plate number, and he calls the police. He says, hey, this guy almost killed me. He might be responsible for the death of Roger Goodlett. You need to check this out. And police, they take him serious. They search the plate numbers and find the car belongs to local businessman Herb Baumeister. I'd like to know why he waited that long. 
to talk to the police. I mean, he knew where this house was, so... He did talk to the police, but Brian Smart had disappeared. Nobody could find him. And from what I could see early on, the police weren't sure a lot of these disappearances were foul play. They thought that these were men who lived very risky behaviors, and they they lived in a world and at a time when gay men might be you know, estranged from their families. It might not be weird for a gay man to just up and leave town and not tell his family. So when families are saying, my gay son left, I don't know where he is, early on I got the impression from these reports that the police were thinking, yeah, your son probably just went to another community, you know, and is doing his thing. Okay. So anyway, this time detectives, they didn't hesitate. One of them confronted Baumeister and asked to search his house. Baumeister refused. Investigators asked his wife, Julie, for permission. She wouldn't give it. Hamilton County courts were asked to provide a search warrant so they could go in. And they didn't find enough evidence to warrant a search, so they didn't order it. Well, a few months later, Julie Baumeister changed her mind. Her husband's mood swings had frightened her, so when Baumeister told his wife he was taking a vacation, she called police and said, hey, come on back over here, have a look. On June 24, 1996, authorities walked out off the backyard patio of the Baumeister's home, and they saw a sea of bones. They looked like small rocks scattered all over in the area where the Baumeister children had played. But detectives said they knew what they were. And less than a day later, forensics confirmed they were fragments of bones. So they could see these just by looking on They could see just looking on the I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. Like I said, I've known a lot about this case, but I never knew that. Well, specialists swarmed the property the next day. And all they found, 5,500 pieces of bone and teeth. Some spilling onto a neighbor's property. It's like he pulverized them. It, well, they, some of them, remember I told you at the beginning, some of these men started disappearing in 1980. This oh. is 1996. Oh. This is 16. Okay. He's had a 16-year, well, no, he bought the house in uh, 1991. So he's been collecting them there for over five years. Yeah, and I'm sure he's moved some of his victims yeah. you know, with him, maybe. I don't think he did because no. they were found in Ohio. Okay, okay. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, uh, it, it was estimated eventually that the bones were from 11 men, and one of them turned out to be Roger Goodlett. 
the subject of that missing persons poster. You know, if Donovan hadn't found Baumeister's interest in that poster, suspicious, who knows how much longer Baumeister would have gone on killing. Correct. That's what started it all. Well, when police first found the bone fragments, Julie Baumeister panicked. Her son was with her husband. So she pleaded with police to give her time to get her son back before the macabre discovery in her backyard hit the news. So they kept it quiet and they waited while Julie had custody papers delivered to Baumeister demanding that the boy return, be returned to his mother. He didn't fight it. He turned the boy over without incident, no doubt thinking this was just all part of the divorce process. And then as soon as the boy was back in his mother's arms, news of the boneyard was broadcast and Baumeister vanished. He wouldn't be seen again until his body was discovered in that Ontario park. With Juliana Baumeister's help, investigators in Ohio pieced together evidence that satisfied them in the cases of six unsolved murders in Preble, Dark, and Defiance counties. Evidence included receipts that Baumeister had showing he had been traveling along I-70 about the same time the bodies had been dumped in those areas. Investigators later determined that Baumeister stopped trolling I-70 when he bought Fox Hollow Farm, probably because he now had plenty of land to hide the bodies. There are too many potential victims to list, Steve, but this is Ohio Mysteries, so let me honor them all by at least introducing you to those who were discovered in Ohio. Eric Allen Redger was found on May 9, 1985, in a creek bed in Preble County, near Roscoe Road, east of Lewisburg. He liked to listen to rock music and do sculpture. He was last seen as he left his sister's home, saying he was going out to look for a job. He was the youngest of four children, the son of an Indianapolis architect. He was just 17. Uh, 17. Michael Allen Glenn was found in a creek bed in Preble County near Crawfordsville, Campbellstown Road, west of Eaton, Ohio. On August 17, 1986, he was identified through fingerprints. He was 29. Stephen L. Elliott was found in a stream bed near Cox Road in Preble County between Westville, Ohio and the Indiana State Line on August 12, 1989. He was 26. Clay Russell Boatman was found on the banks of Sugar Run Creek near a bridge on Paint Creek Road, southwest of Eaton. His body was found by a group of children on August 14, 1990. He was a nurse at the Greenbrier Manor Nursing Home in Indianapolis, which reported him missing when he failed to show up for his shift. He was remembered as a quiet man who did his job well. He was 32. Thomas R. Clevenger, Jr. was found on an abandoned railroad bed near Greenville, Ohio, on September 12, 1990. His family said he was not gay. He disappeared after leaving his house a week earlier to attend his girlfriend's birthday party. He liked fishing, cooking, and playing with his golden Labrador retriever. He was days away from his 19th birthday. Also among the unidentified victims attributed to Herm Baumeister is a man who was found on May 31, 1989, in Deviance County, near the Indiana State Line. 
Well, that's all I have for you tonight, Steve. I don't think there's any need for an armchair detective. There's plenty no. of mystery left in this case, but who done it is not one of them. Right. Then that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, links, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website at ohiomysteries.com. That brings us to tonight's featured musical artist. Blossom Hall is comprised of Nancy Periscopopoulos and Phil Cotter. You can learn more about them and their music at their website, blossomhall.com. And by all means, follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Better yet, go see them in person. On April 25, they'll be at Miami University in Oxford, and they've got a June 14th date at Motor Pub in Cincinnati. Uh, If you check their website, I'm sure you can keep up with wherever they're performing. The pair write most of their songs together, but the song we're playing for you tonight, Parasols, was written by Phil back in 2012. He told me he was fresh off of a breakup when nostalgia and angst were at their peak. They are rearranging and re-recording the song for an album they are planning for 2020. By the way, Phil used to also belong to a band called Plastic Inevitables. And they were posting a new song video on YouTube every month, and they're still on there. So you can go check out those two. You can find a direct link to Blossom Hall and all of our featured singer-songwriters on our website. Just look for the feature music link at the top of our page. In the meantime, turn up the volume, settle back, and enjoy the full version of Parasols. We do got
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.